0: This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli.
1: And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well,
0: Margaret, the growing pains continue for the online insurance marketplaces. Verizon, uh, who hosted the data hub, was down, uh, knocking the exchange uh, site down as well. They've had their fair share of problems, Margaret, but they also have brought in some technical experts uh, to get these things resolved.
1: That's right. And even while it was happening, Mark, CMS Administrator Marilyn Tavener, was on Capitol Hill apologizing to a congressional committee about the problems with the exchange, saying it wasn't acceptable, taking responsibility vowing to see it fixed and setting a deadline by when it would be fixed.
0: You know, also they've uh, encountered another problem in addition to the website. People are saying that uh, millions of Americans are being kicked off their insurance. I think the Secretary Sibelius clearly laid out that millions of Americans annually prior to this have lost their insurance. They had insurances that were sold to them that didn't cover anything. And any time that they found themselves needing health insurance, many times they were dismissed from the plan. That's no longer allowed. And I think that's good news.
1: I agree with you. And speaking of Health and Human Service Secretary Kathleen Sebelius, Wow. Has she been on the hot seat, taken a bit of a drumming from some members of Congress over these problems with the launch of the federal exchange?
0: Meanwhile, the president chose a different venue to bring his case to the people. He traveled to Massachusetts, which has had a very robust health insurance plan. But when it started out, it also faced these similar problems. Those are in distant memories. And now people enjoy a robust plan uh, from Massachusetts as well as the federal plan.
1: But, you know, uh, the administration, I think, did make a reasoned and appropriate uh, decision to extend the deadline for the individual mandate to purchase insurance by March 31st. They've extended that deadline for open enrollment and other six weeks out to April 15th. I think that was a good recognition that people had been inconvenienced and and who knows if ultimately that made the difference, but an appropriate decision to make. Margaret,
0: I think you're absolutely right on that. And some good news came out recently for those Americans who rely on Medicare Part B premiums. Their rates won't be going up in 2014, remaining flat. And Medicare Part D has saved seniors over $8 billion in drug costs as well. So, a positive bit of news for seniors relying on this program.
1: Well, our guest today knows quite a bit about change in the healthcare arena. Dr. Farzad Mostashari recently left his post as the National Coordinator for Health IT at the Department of Health and Human Services. He's now at the Brookings Institution, where he's going to continue to promote the expansion of health information technology across the country to improve health care. He'll be taking a look back and also talking about his new endeavors.
0: We'll also be hearing from Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org who will be stopping by to shine a spotlight on misstatements made about health policy in the public domain.
1: But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by googling CHC Radio.
0: And as always, if you have comments, please contact us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Farzad Mostashari in just a moment.
0: But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News.
2: I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The Obama administration on the offensive. President Obama using last week's anniversary of his re-election to trumpet a campaign aimed at making sure the online health insurance marketplaces work. Saying he's got one more campaign in him. President Obama vowed to continue to work on the issues plaguing healthcare.gov until the system runs smoothly. Plagued with myriad problems and setbacks on the federal exchange, a cadre of hand-picked top-of-the-line coders from across the Internet spectrum are working round-the-clock to fix the system. Some of the top folks from Google, Amazon, and more. They're still shooting for an end-of-November deadline to have the worst of the problems sorted out. However, the rounds of criticisms against the law continue to mount with each passing day. The loudest chorus resonating from the right of the aisle, but an increased number of Democrats and supporters of the health care law are calling for a recalibration of the timeline. As it is, the deadline to sign up for health coverage has been extended six weeks to April 15th. And though the state-based insurance exchanges are generally being run more efficiently, there are still problems being reported there as well, especially at junctures where the state's exchanges interface with the federal government's website. While tens of thousands of customers have gained coverage in exchanges across the country in states like New York, Connecticut, and California, as of last week, not one customer in Oregon had been able to sign up due to problems with their website. And what about those policies being canceled by insurance companies across the country? Millions of self-insured residents have gotten cancellation notices on policies, but there is somewhat of a backstory. Most of those plans are expensive with high deductibles and don't cover the essential benefits required by the health care law some insurance companies then urging them to get a more expensive plan in that insurance company, steering them away from the exchanges. As a number of these policyholders look into the federal or state exchanges for an alternative, they're finding those policies are cheaper, cover more, and allow them to capitalize on government subsidies to defray the cost of health insurance. A number of those insurance companies are already being fined for misleading their customers. And with all the hullabaloo over the health care law, especially in Congress, there's one bright spot on the horizon, bipartisan support for a fixed to the SGR, the Medicare reimbursement formula that's been plaguing the health care industry for years. There's a measure under consideration that would freeze current reimbursement for 10 years and fix the formula to reward value and outcomes. Without a fix, Congress holds the health care industry in its grip every year while voting on a last-minute so-called doc fix. I'm Mariano Hare with these health care headlines.
0: We're speaking today with Dr. Farzad Mustashari, a visiting fellow at the Engelbert Center for Healthcare Reform at the Brookings Institution. Dr. Mustashari was recently the National Coordinator for Health IT at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where he led a national initiative to promote widespread adoption of health information technology. Dr. Mustashari has served at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, also served as Assistant Commissioner at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene Initiative, and serves as Chair of the International Society for Disease Surveillance. Dr. Mr. Sherry, welcome back, actually, to Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Thank you for having me back.
0: Well, we're in that, hopefully, the final stages of the rollout of the Affordable Care Act, and there has been 724 on the troubles of healthcare.gov, the federal portal uh, to the online insurance marketplace, and we're sure they're going to uh, get that fixed. But sort of lost in this larger focus has been uh, the work that you've been doing on meaningful adoption of electronic health records across the country to improve healthcare delivery through better health data management. So tell us a little bit, if you will, about your thoughts on the current crisis but also the bigger health IT issues that are not part of the current debate that's going on uh, in Congress.
3: Absolutely. So, I mean, the one thing is the Affordable Care Act has taken some big steps forward in terms of of getting people covered, Uh, whether it's through the Medicaid expansion, whether it's through uh, children under the age of 26 being able to stay on their parents' insurance with pre existing conditions. And this is the last piece of of that puzzle fitting together to get the 15% of the U.S. population that doesn't have access to health insurance, access to health insurance, which is a good thing. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think uh, all the discussions we can't forget about almost the moral imperative of having people be able to access health insurance, which they never could do before. The website is not the Affordable Care Act. And at the end of the day, there are better options for people today than we had before uh, to be able to have access to affordable Uh, health insurance. And uh, I think that the website issues will be resolved. But at the end of the day, it's going to come down not to discussions of health policy. It's going to come down to individual consumers saying, do I have access to better health insurance and less expensive premiums, including with the subsidies than I had before? And I think for the vast majority of Americans, the answer is going to be yes uh, for those who didn't have insurance or who are transitioning as I am. Uh, For me to be able to keep the insurance, the family plan that I had with, with my family and my federal job after I left my federal role last month would have cost our family $25,000 a year right. if I were purchasing it as an individual. On the Maryland exchange yesterday, I went on and I went all the way through and it worked. Yay. <laughs> <Isn't that great? laughs> I could get that same family plan for $10,000 a year. That is astounding. And it's, you know, it, it's better.
1: Well, Dr. Mustashari, thank you so much for putting it in that perspective. Uh, you've obviously just left a very high-profile job as the National Coordinator for Healthcare Information at the Department of Health and Human Services. You also had another goal, which was not just to implement them, but to liberate the data that came from them to accelerate the pace of research, which ultimately improves health care uh, and improves health outcomes. Perhaps you could give us an assessment. How far have we come in the United States since the time that you joined the ONC about four years ago? Uh,
3: the, the short answer is we're about halfway done through the basic process, the first step of bringing the age of data to healthcare, of digitizing healthcare. So when we started, 8.8% of hospitals, about 17% of physician practices did. And uh, within just a few short years, that, that number went up fivefold for hospitals and threefold for physician practices. It something that was you know, pretty uh, unusual just a few short years ago is now the, the norm, using electronic health records to take care of patients, not just do billing. But as you point out, that's just the first step. Um, and what, what are we using them for? And how are the meaningful use requirements around population health management, around being able to examine disparities in the care you're providing, around being able to share information uh, with patients and with each other. Those aren't just technical capabilities. Those are competencies in delivering health in new ways, which I think we're only about 5 to 10% of the way uh, through figuring out how to use the technology in these new ways. But a whole lot of work yet to be done.
0: Uh, You sort of talked about information shared with patients, and I was thinking about the next 10 years really being about consumer engagement and thinking about the sort of the three A's, access, action, and attitude. So talk to us about what you see, the sort of shared decision-making with the patient at the center of this. How are we going to engage the consumer? What's the paradigm shift There's
3: a whole series of behaviors that flow down from how we pay for healthcare, And it really runs counter to what people went to medical school to do with their lives. But there's a couple of big trends here that are changing that equation. The first is changing in payment that does two things. One, increasingly, the patient perspective and patient experiences are one of several factors that are going to play into Position reimbursement, and you know, like it or not, that there's going to be more attention uh, and, and money behind those. But more substantially, I think, is going to be those measures and metrics relating to outcomes. Did the patient get readmitted? Well, some of that, a lot of that, is going to be what happens to the patient and how well they know how to take care of themselves after they leave the hospital. So there's a lot more attention now, all of a sudden, because of the reimbursement change to making sure the patient understands. And by golly, yes, let's bring the family member in too mm-hmm. so they can understand. <laughs> so there's a better pass-off and they can help uh, take better care of themselves. And and then the other massive mega trend is the fact that that hardware and software and platform is now ubiquitous. In more and more pockets, we have these smartphones that are really going to be able to be incredibly powerful tools if an ecosystem emerges to help turn that, that data into useful actions for people. And and that is, I think, one of the most exciting things happening now is this vast ecosystem that's starting to get rolling uh, uh, that is around health and wellness, uh, and I think it's very exciting.
1: It is very exciting. And, you know, I I have to draw an analogy here between Uh, the excitement about engaging patients, engaging them in decision-making, giving them tools to change and to make progress, and what the Office of the National Coordinator uh, did with the creation of the regional extension centers for the adoption and implementation and meaningful use of the electronic health records. And I think the question would be, does that structure live on past our years of the Meaningful Use Dollars and the high tech Act to become something of a a cornerstone or a building block that we can use when we need large-scale change, improvement, and advancement in the healthcare system, but we need it on the ground. We need it in rural communities and urban communities. We need it across America. I'd be so curious in your thoughts on that.
3: Gosh, I, I, I can't say it more beautifully than you just did. It's really been an incredible success story There's nothing I'm more proud of than the work that the 62 local and regional health IT extension centers did in reaching out to, in their own communities, reaching out to those most difficult implementation sites, not taking the easy, right? The the extension centers went to the hardest. They went to the small practices and the solo practitioners and the community health centers and the rural health clinics and the critical access hospitals, and they got 143,000 primary care providers, to help them get to this really very difficult process of changing what we've been doing for 5,000 years, writing with pen and paper, into electronic age. Now you're asking, well, now what? Are we done? No, we're not done. How to use it and the process change and how to get quality improvement and how to uh, do the patient engagement piece of this and how to succeed at accountable care, don't we need boots on the ground to help with that too? More than ever, I would say, more than ever. And it is, the, it is really the largest force that we do have for practice transformation in this country. And, you know, I, I don't know if it's going to be the states that step up. There are many states who have now um, been able to, to, to leverage nine-to-one federal funding, actually, to help those extension centers uh, extend their work to specialists on the Medicaid side. But the fundamental problem, I think, here is that they have been seen as something that should be free or almost free. And making that mental switch to saying, I'm not going to compare it to free. I'm going to compare it to the fifty or or $100,000 it's going to cost me to bring in a private sector consultant who loans half of what these guys do. Uh, that, I think, is the... Is, is the challenge uh, that that we're facing.
0: We're speaking today with Dr. Farzad Mustashari, visiting fellow at the Engelberg Center for Healthcare Reform at the Brookings Institution. Dr. Mustashari was recently the national coordinator for health IT at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where he led a national initiative to promote widespread adoption of health information technology. We've talked, uh, and you've talked about the transforming the healthcare landscape as we really need to take uh, an American, approach to payment reform, and there's been a lot of focus about the accountable care organizations being a big factor in these new payment models. You know, I'm wondering if it really is going to come from those areas. I think they seem to be out there, but in name only. And I, I wonder what your thoughts are about Medicare and Medicaid really leaving, uh, leading this drive, because I think you have to ask yourself the question, what, what are we paying for? We're, we're paying Absolutely. for people to get healthy, right? So Absolutely. I, I Or are we paying to save money, short-term savings? And I wonder if accountable care organizations without the federal leadership here are really going to – really come into to their own right now and so tell us what you're thinking about what you see the future to be about new payment approach to really shift this landscape this and to, to absolutely bend the cost curve but to clearly get away from this terrible model that we we have now which requires the body to come in yeah. you know sort of so so luddite just yeah. isn't isn't focused on the patient I, or outcomes
3: I'm a big believer in the concept of of the accountable care organizations and I think it is the single Best hope we have for primary care in this country. I, I think it's it, it's a huge opportunity, and it's really the primary care physicians in all this that hold the keys to the kingdom, and they don't even know they're holding it. But with the accountable care organization, which is a national program, it's available to any any primary care provider that, uh, or group of primary care providers that have more than 5,000 Medicare beneficiaries, the core concept there is you, if you improve quality, if you improve chronic disease management, care coordination, and you keep people healthy and out of the hospital, then you get to share in the savings that come from that. And that is just an enormous opportunity for primary care because primary care providers don't account for more than a few tiny percentage points of the total health care cost. So by investing more, and this is what we've been saying all along, but now here's an opportunity to walk the talk, right? If you deliver more and better primary care and keep people healthy, you will be able to recoup those costs to be able to reinvest in the kind of improvement and the kind of care that you've always wanted to provide. Now, the challenge here is knowing how to do that is not easy. We have a lot of the information tools. But we don't have, I think, as you pointed out, the widespread understanding of how to use the tools to meet those payment models, how to be able to reduce those admissions that are ambulatory care sensitive, how to be accountable and to be able to count all my patients and anticipate Mm -hmm. who's going to be the one to get in trouble and to reach out to them affirmatively instead of waiting for them to to make an appointment with me. Those are fundamentally new skills, and we have an accountable care organization learning network here at Brookings, that I'm I'm really working to invigorate the physician ACO uh, part of that process, and I really uh, invite anybody who is a physician ACO. If you're a primary care practice and you're not thinking about it, by golly, you're missing an opportunity, and I'd love to have you engage with uh, with me here uh, at Brookings on that on that activity.
1: You know it uh, in many ways, you are describing a phenomena I think of recent years, which is that all healthcare people have always understood they have a responsibility to be lifetime learners, lifelong learners, yeah. staying current with the developments in science, but now there's been a new uh, focus Put on people to be lifetime learners of practice transformation, uh, yeah. lifetime learners of quality improvement, and of new techniques. And yet, we you know we just had this conversation with a team of our colleagues this morning. Uh, has this gone to the level of the schools of the health professions, both the undergraduate schools and certainly um, the graduate professional schools, from your perch, what are the transformations happening in the education and preparation of the next generation that are going to make this uh, a smoother, easier platform for everybody?
3: That's a great question. I have long regretted that when I was going through my medical training, there really wasn't much of, of a focus at all on improvement science, on managing populations. It, it, was, right. it was 100% focused right. on you have a person in front of you who has an illness, and, and almost to the exclusion of even understanding the context, the community that that person comes from, the time, and, and where are we, and when are we, and what's happening, uh, of which that population that that person is merely one example and how to improve uh, a cohort of patients. Those are, those are skills that are, that are still not being taught. And the electronic health record, uh, I know that there are in many schools, uh, patient, uh, the, the students don't even have a right to, to touch the record uh, because they, don't, they haven't figured out the policies of, of, of how to make sure that the, the, the countersigning and the medical legal aspects or are, uh, are liability issues are addressed. Uh, but those are solvable problems and absolutely I think that medical students, uh, nursing students and others can be huge uh, assets and, and, and part of their training must be how to use information systems to improve uh, population health uh, as well as individual health. The one, the ray of light that I'm seeing, we, we're doing a, a pilot, ONC is doing a, a pilot study now with, uh, with an experiment, with a curriculum with um, educators at Tufts Medical School. Um, but uh, I recently heard from someone that some of the newer medical schools uh, are actually incorporating uh, these themes into into including one I heard in Connecticut. Uh, so it may be, again, some of the disruptors, some of the newcomers right. that for which some of the most interesting things occur.
0: You know, I want to uh, hearken back to the days that you and uh, Tom Frieden were in. Uh, uh, working in new york city 's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, yes. first of all, a shout out to Mayor Bloomberg for how did he assemble the two of you uh, uh, This is sort of a great who and others, who, uh, said, yes. and others who, who were there, but you know for the sort of the public health folks who are also listening, t- talk about the sort of uh, passion that you brought there you You all were thinking about really radical transformations of of uh, of the uh, municipal environment. And that had national, international implications. Uh, what we need back in our communities at the governmental level? Uh, what type of leadership do we need uh, to continue that? Because uh, they're really uh, uh, the the place for real transformations in our country. Certainly, the national work that you've done has been exciting. But I I still hearken uh, back to those days yeah. and and the excitement that you brought. Uh, into the national arena?
3: Uh, you know, uh, Tom Tom and I wrote a paper, uh, and it was about New York City smoking uh, experience and, and how smoking in teens was dropped by half, and and uh, adults, it, and after years of being stagnant, it came down because of a combination of things that we did, driven by data, driven by evidence, uh, but really hard policies, but, you know, whether it's the Smoke Fear Act, whether it's cigarette tax, whether it's cutting down on you know, more enforcement, whether it's education, whether it's marketing, and, and, and so forth. But at the end of the article, we said, uh, you know, in order to have uh, sustained improvement, uh, federal action is needed, which is kind of a standard thing that people at the local city level, state level, they always write in the end of their articles, right? Like, we need federal action. That's right. And the editor made one change. They crossed out that line and said, our evidence shows that local action can <laughs> have, a, have a major impact. Uh, and, and I think that's, the, that's, I guess, the lesson that, that I take away from that is that every one of us can be leaders in our communities. And to paraphrase uh, Warren Buffett, I heard this today, uh, you know, doing, saving lives is simple. It's just hard. <laughs> Great. we know what to do we know what to do saving lives is simple there are a few simple things right the abc's right focus on the the blood pressure control and the and the cholesterol and smoking and there are public programs that we know work it's just hard to do them but let's do them and we will see the results and that i guess is is what um i I will give uh real praise to mayor bloomberg he was never afraid of doing the simple but hard thing that he that, that would, would save lives.
1: Well, thank you for that shout-out to personal, to local, and to national leadership, all of which you embody. We've been speaking today with Dr. Farzad Mostashari, visiting fellow at the Engelberg Center for Healthcare Reform at the Brookings Institution and recently National Coordinator for Health IT at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. You can learn more about his work by going to brookings.edu. Also, follow him on Twitter at Farzad underscore MD. Dr. Mostashari, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Thank you.
4: We've seen true and false claims about the healthcare navigators. These are the federal workers funded by the Affordable Care Act that educate the uninsured about their options on the exchanges and help them enroll for coverage. Let's start with the false. House Republicans claimed on the Energy and Commerce Committee's website that a Fox News report makes clear that navigators were going door-to-door to to enroll Americans after the Obama administration said that they would not be going door-to-door. But the Fox News report was mistaken. The workers it showed weren't navigators. They were representatives of the United Way of Florida and a group called Enroll America. Neither group received federal funding under the Navigator Program. We spoke with both groups and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to confirm that. Now for the true. Senator John Barrasso claimed that navigators don't have to go through criminal background checks. That's right. There's nothing in federal statutes that requires such checks. A handful of states, five of them to be exact, have added that requirement. And there are other safeguards aimed at protecting against identity theft, which was Barrasso's concern.
1: week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. When Derek Kayongo was a young refugee living in Africa, he learned the true meaning of survival.
0: child of war can be simply described as a kid caught between a rock and a hard place. It's finding all your pieces and trying to put them back together.
1: Rescued by an aid organization and brought to the United States, he knew he had to do something to make a difference in the lives of those many children left behind children displaced by war, orphaned by disease, living in extreme poverty. 2.4 million children die each year from lack of access to basic sanitation.
0: We have about 2 million kids that die of sanitation issues, mainly because they don't wash their hands.
1: And when Kayonga learned that hotels around the United States dispose of 800 million bars of soap every year, he knew that was a resource to tap into.
0: Housekeeping. 800 million bars of soap that the hotels throw away in the U.S. alone
2: every year.
1: He founded the Global Soap Project. The discarded soaps are gathered and processed at a plant that sanitizes, melts, and reforms new bars of soap that will be distributed around the world to children and families living in poverty or in disaster zones like Haiti. And with it, the children are given lessons in basic hygiene, some learning for the first time how to thoroughly wash their hands and why. The Global Soap Project earned Coyungo the distinction of one of CNN's hero finalists, and he was also a winner in the annual Classy Awards, which support philanthropic work that improves health and wellness around the globe. A simple idea, repurposing the waste of soap and providing one of the most simple tools of hygiene to those in need around the world. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And
2: I'm Mark Mazzelli.
0: Peace and health.